0: Apparently gonna go back and learn some more, and maybe they can quiz you next time, huh? How many of them did you know, by the way? All of them? All of them? All right. Oh yeah, that was great. Yeah, indeed. All right. Well, today we're going to get ready for worship. Are you ready? All right. So today I thought, well, let's define worship. First and foremost, there's a secular definition I looked up last week, as I want to talk about worship today from Luke chapter seven. And here is what Merriam-Webster, how they would define worship. They say, first of all, number one, it is defined as worship is to honor or show reverence for as a divine being or supernatural power. Okay. It also says, secondly, worship is to regard with great or extravagant respect, honor, or devotion a celebrity worshipped by her fans. So that's the definition, according to Mary Webster, of what it means to worship. But I don't like that definition so much. So I thought I would contrast that with some other definitions. So i was looking for a more biblical definition. So I went to the source that gives us all the great biblical information, right? The Bible, right? Now I went to Google. So I asked Google, I said, what is the definition of a biblical worship? And I come up with two great answers. The first from Adrian Rogers. I like Adrian Rogers. And Adrian Rogers defines worship this way. He said, worship is when we give our deepest affections and highest praise to something. That's really good. Deepest affections and highest praise to something. He said, true worship of God is when we love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's when we prize God above everything else and put him first in our hearts. As it says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. So I like the definition or the thought of what is worship according to Adrian Rogers, a well-respected pastor who passed on. But now I found another one I wanted to share with you, another great definition from Michael Morrison and his commentary a Survey of the Bible. He says, when we worship, we are saying that God has worth, that he is worthy. Worship means to declare worth or to, do, to attribute worth. Or to put it in biblical terms, we praise God. We speak or sing about how good and powerful God is. Well, I like these definitions, this perspective of worship, much better than what's defined in secularly as the St. and Merriam-Webster dictionary. So I like these because it correctly states that we as Christians, we as believers, are to worship God. Only really God and only His Son, Jesus. We're to worship God, His Son, Jesus. But on honesty, as we begin to live life, we, we give praise, and in a sense, we give worship to other things and other people. As noted, sometimes it is celebrities, sometimes it is certainly athletes and maybe some entertainers. Those people sometimes receive part of our praise and maybe even a worship. But at times, it goes even further, we extend praise and worship to people like our co-workers or our friends and maybe even our bosses somehow, some way, and even our spouse and children. You know, maybe some of those, especially your wife or your husband or your children, are deserving of praise at times. But here's the thing we need to understand. If we only ever extend praise or worship to these things and these people, then we leave out truly the one who most certainly deserves our heartfelt, genuine, sincere praise and worship. I mean, it's really only Jesus that has done so much to deserve the praise and worship. So only he is worthy of worship and our praise. Even though we may almost delude it a little bit in our lives by giving it to other people, only Jesus really is worthy of our praise and our worship. So in the text today, in Luke chapter 7, we're going to read about and find a woman who extends her worship to Jesus. It's in a time and day when women were thought of as being lesser than men, and as she then offers her praise and worship, we'll find that what she she receives, and she has to suffer some jeering, some mocking, some ridicule, and some humiliation. But nonetheless, she offers her most sincere, heartfelt praise and worship to the person who truly deserves it, to the one who truly deserves it, to Jesus. We'll see that written within the text. So stand with me this morning as we dive into the midst of Luke chapter 7. We're We're reading towards the end of the chapter. We're going to start in verse 36 and read through the actual end. We're going to start in verse 36 of chapter 7 according to the gospel of Luke. Here's what Luke is writing. You may notice in your Bible, if you're reading along with me, that some of your words will be written in red, the words of our Lord. But here's what Luke says in chapter 7, starting in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat. That's what Jesus asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, verse 39, when the Pharisee who invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, saying to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. He said, A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Well, Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled a larger debt. Jesus said to him, You had judged rightly. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Father, we come before you today, Lord, having read this text, Lord, and just want to put ourselves the best we can within the text and see how. The woman has extended honest, heartfelt, sincere praise and worship to you. And how we today, Lord, want to do the same. We want to honor you and glorify you and give you all the honor, Lord, and rightful, true praise and worship that you deserve. Let us recognize that we should reserve our praise and worship for you, for the sacrifice that you've made for us. Lord, let us today heed the message and hear the words you chose us to hear today as we set our hearts today on worship. We love you, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I first note that Luke's gospel is written kind of unique from uh, the other gospels. He's really more from a Gentile believer perspective. And here in the seventh chapter, we see that he is primarily writing to show Jesus dealing with the Pharisees. Now, as you may already know, Jesus often was very critical of the Pharisees. He had conflict with the Pharisees upon many occasions. He, he referred to the Pharisees at times as fools and hypocrites, at times as serpents and blind guys. In Matthew 23-27, he even refers to them as whitewashed tombs. In Matthew 12-34, he calls them a brood of vipers. So he was at odds with them quite often and was not always the best of friend, perhaps, with them. But here, as we look into the chapter 7, it's odd, then, that the story begins in chapter 30, I mean, verse 36 with his dining with the Pharisee, those men that he seemed to have conflict with. Now, we're going to find, as he goes to the house of the Pharisee and begins to have the dining, there's a, his, the Pharisee's name is identified in verse 40 assignments. We go back to the text and look at the beginning once more, because we find in verse 36, again Simon is a Pharisee identified in verse 40. Then tell us his name at the beginning. But it says one of the Pharisees against Simon asked Jesus to eat with him, and Jesus didn't deny the opportunity. He went politely and he went to the Pharisee's house and it says reclined at the table. But notice what happens next. While dining reclined at the table, a woman. In verse 37, simply identified as a sinner, which would obviously mean she has sinned in her life, she learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. And then she came directly to Jesus when she learns that he is there dining with time in the Pharisee. Now we get the impression that her attendance was kind of sudden and certainly unexpected. I mean, not, she's not on the invite list, to come to Simon's house and be part of the dinner. And it's maybe an intrusion that no one was expecting. I mean, most students of the Word see the woman identified as a sinner as really being a woman of the evening. In modern-day translations, it just says she was a prostitute. But according to the reaction of the Pharisee, verse 39, as she intrudes upon the dinner and the occasion, he must have known something about her. Or at the very least was keenly aware of her reputation. because in short, he's not at all pleased with her intrusion at his dinner. Now, if you picture this like I'm picturing and trying to put yourself in the store, you're thinking, okay, here's Simon at his house, however large that is, having a large banquet and dinner, He's invited Jesus, most likely other people are there too. The woman was not invited. But how she get into the house then? I mean, how she get into this dinner? I mean, could she just walk freely in and just join the dinner? And is that the intrusion? Is that how it happened? Well, it's not exactly how it happened. We learn from the commentaries. Lewis Foster begins to explain a little bit about how she could get into this dinner and have the intrusion uninvited. He says a formal meal of this kind would be eaten with a door open to the street or an inner court and outsiders could come and observe the table and the guests. Some might presume to come into the dining room and seat themselves around the walls to watch and listen. They were even known to engage in the table conversation upon occasion. This particular woman must have heard Jesus preach, perhaps a personal interview as well. As a result, she had changed her life. She now had such relief from her sins such joy and gratitude in her new life, she wanted to do something special for Jesus to honor him herself. So she gets in because it's more open than what we're accustomed to. And then she goes in and she finds Jesus with the sole intent of trying to honor him and show joy and gratitude for the fact that he has forgiven her of her sinful past. So what did she do then to honor Jesus? We go back to the text and look further. In verse 37, it says a woman of the city, a sinner, came in while Jesus at the table. But look, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Standing behind him, in verse 38, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. I don't know if we can picture what's happening here, truly, because none of us do this kind of thing. None of us take an opportunity to anybody that we're in love with to take their hair, no shield does not come to me, wet her hair and begin to weep and be able to kiss my feet. I mean, she should, right? Huh? I thought we'd get an amen there. But we don't say this kind of thing happening in the modern day, so we almost can't even picture it. But here a woman comes, I mean, a woman of the evening, a prostitute by nature. She comes, she's changed her whole life. She wants to show Jesus some true love, some true honor and praise and worship. And she goes about with her hair, kissing his feet and wiping her his feet with the, her hair and the ointment. I mean, in essence, what's happening here? As that she's exposed her heart. And her heart's purely set on worship to her Savior. And she knows her Savior's name, it is Jesus. And we stop here for a moment because you're thinking, okay, I know where you're going with this story now. I've heard it before. I mean, I've heard this story about a woman pouring perfume and ointment on Jesus' feet. In fact, I think I've heard it before, and it was Mary. Well, that is true, sort of, so let me explain further that this beautiful story has some interesting parallels with the record of the anointing of Jesus in the last week of his earthly life. We can find it in all the other Gospels, but scholars in general kind of agree that the certain elements of this particular narrative set it apart from all the others and suggest strongly that this is a different account A different account, a different person, a different occasion. So maybe we should not confuse it of all of anything we may have heard before about the story of of Mary of Bethany in John chapter 12, where she performs something similar, or what we know about Mary Magdalene when she does something similar with Jesus in Mark chapter 8, or maybe chapter 16. What we have here is a little different, is more specific of it. A Pharisee has invited Jesus to a dinner. It's Simon, specifically, as a Pharisee. We don't see Mary in the equation here, but we see a woman identified as a sinner, a woman of the evening to come and show her love and want to honor and worship Jesus. So perhaps it's a completely different story. But nonetheless, she comes, having been forgiven of her sin, to show her gratitude I mean she somehow some way learns that Jesus her Savior is in town and she arrives to her Savior carrying this alabaster jar of perfume completely interrupting the dinner knowing that as she interrupts the dinner the guests who were watching talking about her past probably maybe even judging her, mocking, ridiculing, jeering her. All that's happening, but she didn't care. The only thing on her mind, the only thing on her heart, was worshiping Jesus. That's the only thing she cared about. I mean, yeah, she had a sudden intrusion into this dinner. And other people probably know her reputation but she doesn't care what they're thinking. She's only wanting to worship and praise Jesus. So it makes us stop and think for a minute. As we see, she doesn't care about anything else. What others may be thinking, she doesn't care. So the question comes up then, do you personally ever get concerned about what other people may think about you worshiping Jesus? Do you ever begin to process in your mind, that okay, I'm going to praise and worship Jesus wherever I am, and do you at the same time be concerned about what other people are thinking? I mean, or another question, do you ever get in your mind begin to think at work or school about how people may view you as a Christian? In fact, that you believe in something you've never seen, you've never heard, you've never touched. I was thinking about this last week, preparing for this morning. I'm thinking that we have faith. We believe in something we've never seen, we've never heard Jesus, and we've never touched. We believe in something like almost as invisible. I mean, in my mind, I begin to think it's like a child who has an invisible friend or a make-believe friend. I mean, some children do that. Some children go through some early years where they have this make-believe friend that's invisible, only seen to them. And they even give this make-believe friend that's invisible, they even give it a name. And they'll even at dinner time set a special place for this person to sit with them. And we have a conversation with them. But they got thinking, I mean, while we've never seen, never heard, never touched Jesus He's no make-believe friend, right? I mean, he's real. He's fully man and fully God. And I noticed, then also that he came to seek and to save the lost. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus offers not one, not two, but three parables to make this truth known of how he came to seek and save the lost. We have the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son all within Luke 15 to make the truth known that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. But even further in Luke, in his gospel, in chapter 19, we find that Jesus visits a man, you may know him well, called Zacchaeus. Now, you know Zacchaeus is a well-known tax collector sinner, but he also has a dinner. Jesus goes to the dinner. And as Jesus at the dinner of Zacchaeus, he receiving again ridicule, mocking, jeering from all the other people, But Jesus makes it known in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, he proclaims the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's his mission. That's his purpose. That's our Savior. He came for you and me and others that were just like us, that was once lost, to seek and to save. And now this text, this woman that we've learned about, an unnamed woman, just like we have, he came to seek and to save. He forgave her of her sins, like he forgives us of our sins. And she takes a moment then to wipe his feet with her hair and expensive perfume. If you will, she merely goes the extra mile to show Jesus how much she loved him. She's willing to sacrifice the embarrassment and the harassment, really, if you will, of the onlookers. Now, when you really begin to think about it, it's a highly unusual occurrence. I mean, all last week I was trying to put myself at the dinner scene. I'm asking you the same. Try to put yourself... At the house of Simon, having all this happening, you're eating, enjoying the food, all of a sudden this woman walks in, makes an intrusion, makes a scene, giving all of her love and affection to Jesus. But you know of her. You mean you're you're knowledgeable of the town enough to know this woman is somebody you would not to want to be associated with or to be near. So as you see the interruption happening, as you put yourself in the scene at the dinner having even known her reputation, how would you have reacted? Would you have maybe turned your nose up again to even question, maybe make a comment, how dare this woman, how dare she interrupt this dinner of the well-known Pharisee assignment that I was invited to and seduce this man in front of us? Because that's what people may have been thinking. That she came merely into her, knowing her reputation, to seduce this man. And I tried to picture it, but I, I, I tried diligently to try to picture myself there, and I was just having trouble because we just don't live in that time and day. But in the ancient world, I learned it was customary for people to come in and to spectate at large dinner parties especially those held by someone of dignity, respect, or some sort of social status. Maybe even like the White House dinner. I mean, none of us are probably going to be invited to the White House dinner because people on a special invite list to go there. And it would not be open to the public. But I was trying to think of a way, a comparison of sorts, to see what, what she's trying to intrude upon. In I mean, it's maybe not to the grand scale of the White House dinner because We're not ever going to get a chance to go there, and she couldn't either, unless somehow it was made public, which is not going to be, and it's a scene on TV, but you still can't get there. So I was trying to think of some other way, some other dinner in which maybe we could relate to, and I thought of the Beetle Bunch turkey noodle dinner we had last Saturday at at the middle school in Princeton, and I thought, well, that's not even a good comparison either because there's no invitation extended. I mean, all are welcome to come and participate and enjoy the meal. So I was trying to imagine some sort of way in which we'd get upset about somebody intruding a special occasion. And I couldn't find one. Because we don't have that type of situation today like it was held in. And, And that particular day, it was not uncommon for these things to happen. However, it was unthinkable to come in off the street, unannounced, uninvited, at a dinner party held by a Pharisee For a prostitute to do so was completely outrageous. Absolutely outrageous for a prostitute to enter the house of Simon and come up to Jesus. So I say that to let you know that this woman perhaps knew that her entry into the dinner, going to Jesus and making a scene was going to have others to look upon the situation. She knew what was happening would provoke a scene. But she was so desperate to see Christ, so desperate to clump to him, that she ignored all the protocol. She came right into the house of the Pharisee with her alabaster jar or bottle of perfume and began to pour on the feet of Jesus. Now, by the way, in case you're wondering, well, how did she maybe get this jar of perfume, and maybe why is it, I mean, it seems, seems to indicate it's kind of hung around her neck. I mean, I don't know if we do that today, it seems like you put your perfume in your purse, but it wasn't uncommon at all then for women to have a bottle of perfume around their neck. They would use it on special occasions, and some translations describe it as an ointment, but it's really not an ointment, it's really more just simply perfume. And it's expensive perfume that she's actually pouring on the feet of Jesus. But she decided that her very expensive perfume was the proper way to show her respect, her gratitude, and worship for her king. The most expensive perfume she could have was poured upon the feet of Jesus. Now I was curious. So I began to look on the internet about perfume. I don't know nothing about perfume. In fact, I found out a couple different things that's amazing. About the most expensive perfume in the world. You know what it is? You probably don't. Because I had absolutely no idea. And I'm going to mess it up. But Colton tried to help me earlier. Try being the keyword. The most expensive perfume in the world is a little French Italian type thing, Le Royale. You know how much it costs? $1.8 million a little bit of perfume and I'm thinking they don't have that at Walmart so I'm trying to figure out what's the most expensive perfume at Walmart and I'm thinking it's probably a $35 bottle of perfume I don't know what it is but this is what she has I mean she has the most expensive perfume to mankind upon that day she takes a moment she discards all the embarrassment that may be happening and she just seizes the opportunity to show her heartfelt worship and praise to Jesus. I mean, she's willing to let go all the public shame, all the humiliation, the embarrassment of that day, and seize the opportunity as it presents itself in the house of a Pharisee to show the Savior of the world with all of her heart how much she loves him, how much she's joyful, how much she appreciates the sacrifice, how much she wants to show him with all of her heart the praise and worship that he deserves. That's her soul intent. She don't care about the dinner. She don't even know what's on the menu. She don't care. She's not there to eat. She's only there to praise and worship Jesus. So we parallel that now to our lives. Because her mind, her heart is solely there to praise and worship Jesus. So we ask ourselves, well, how is our mind in our heart? Do we come here this morning ready and eager to worship? To worship the Savior, the man who gave his life for you and for me? The man who took the shame, the humiliation, the embarrassment hanging on the cross? He did it just for you. Are you ready and prepared to worship Jesus and Jesus alone? Or something, as it so often seems to be in life, getting in your way of worshiping the King? the Savior. I mean, look, I know I've been there. Life gets really hard at times. And I notice it's a, it's a pattern that just kind of repeats itself over and over and over again. We work, we run errands, we take our kids to practices, there's weekend games, there's recitals, we buy groceries, or we do takeout, we prepare for dinner. We eat, we sleep, we sleep, and we just start all over again, we wake up. It's a pattern that goes on and on and on and on and on. And we think to ourselves, well, we're never getting any rest. And we begin to rationalize in our mind and maybe even our heart that Sunday, okay, Sunday is a day of rest. God even said, take a day off. We have it with the children. They're learning the six days God created. The seventh day, he took rest. So we rationalize in our mind. It's a very busy life. We're going to have to get some rest. We rest we rationalize, we justify, we sleep in, we get a rest on Sunday, right? It happens. But here's the question. Where, when, how did you ever worship Jesus throughout that week? In all your busyness, myself included, when do we ever worship Jesus? I mean, do you ever feel as you're going about your week that you left something out? In all your days full of activities, did you ever in a moment think, I've left something out. I know i got to do something. What did I forget to do? I mean, it happens to me all the time. I'm going to turn 61 next year, all right? When you all get there, some of you already there, you're going to forget a few things every once in a while, okay? You're going to make a list. You're going to forget where the list is at, okay? You're going to see your glasses, and you're going to think, well, I mean... Or those my glasses? Where'd I put my glasses? Happens to your phone? I forgot where I put my phone. It's gonna happen. Prepare yourself, people. So we forget about things because we get so busy. But did we did we somehow forget to praise and worship Jesus? Could it be possible that we did not make time for Jesus in a particular day or throughout the week? Could it be possible we didn't set aside the time to worship the Savior and the King? That's what we have to ask ourselves. Because we need to start thinking about it this way and ask ourselves this. Is any day ever complete without expressing your gratitude and thanking God and worshiping the Savior? Is any day ever complete without stopping for a moment and saying, thank you, Jesus, thank you, God? for all your goodness. Let me today just praise you for a moment and worship you and you alone. How's any day ever complete without taking a moment to reflect upon the sacrifice and the goodness we have and just thanking Him and extending a moment of joy, worship, and praise? Because we need to recognize it's a daily event. Worshiping Jesus not just one day per week is not just set aside for Sunday. I mean, we're blessed to be here this morning joined together in public worship, honoring our King with song and praise, freely here to learn about the Word and apply it to our lives while simultaneously giving God the glory and the praise. But worshiping Jesus is not just one day per week. It is daily. Each and every day, pause, reflect, and worship and praise him. I listen to K Love Radio a lot. I drive the bus in the mornings the afternoons. And I listen to it then. I deliver food back and forth to the schools. I also have it on K-Love, but there's a song I've been hearing quite a bit recently by Cocker and a company called Parking Lot. I don't know if you heard it or not, it's a great song. But the words literally say, I met Jesus in the parking lot. Like I got thinking about that. I thought, this, that's, that's the great thing about Jesus, is that Jesus is always available. I mean, you don't have to go to church to meet Jesus. You can go to Walmart, parking lot, school. Where you can meet Jesus anywhere because he's always available. And through the Holy Spirit, he lives. He's guiding us. He's directing us. He's keeping us safe. But Jesus, because he's always available, he's always available to receive our praise always available, ready to receive praise and worship. And it's precisely what we should do. We should take a moment to worship the King. In fact, we're made as part of our lives to worship the King. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for whose own possession that you will proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of the darkness into His marvelous light. Matthew 4.10, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Even further, John 4.23, the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And finally, Philippians 2, verses 9-11, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. We are to praise, honor, worship our Lord. But maybe we're ashamed. Maybe we're embarrassed. If that should be the case, let me tell you, never be ashamed. Never be ashamed of Jesus. Mark 8:38. Jesus said, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the healthy angels. Simply means don't worry about the embarrassment. If someone's going to mock you and ridicule you, make fun of you for being a Christian and worshiping Jesus, just let him do it. It would be an honor to be persecuted in that way. So don't worry about the embarrassment who may be watching and God directing thoughts to you and all that. I mean, just just praise and worship Jesus. Just simply praise and worship Jesus. I mean, don't be like Simon the Pharisee. Notice how he reacted. When all this is happening, we go back to the text and look at Simon's reaction. Verse 39, Now when the Pharisee against Simon, who invited him, saw this, he said to himself, notice, he didn't even say it out loud. He's thinking to himself, if this man were a prophet, it's almost like he said it out loud, but he didn't. He said to himself, This man was a prophet. He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. I see a sarcastic comment on the horizon here. But it, it prompts Jesus then to give Simon a lesson. Verse 40. He answered, it. Jesus didn't hear it. Simon said it to himself, but Jesus knows. Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon answered, Say it, teacher. I mean, it's obvious to the reader that although he didn't speak it out loud, Jesus knew what Simon was thinking. And he answers Simon's sarcastic, demeaning criticism with, I have something to say to you. That's where I'd like to be. Yeah. So then Jesus tells him a parable concerning the creditor who had two debtors. One had 500 denarii, the other one had 50. Neither was able to pay him back, so he forgave them both. And then Jesus asked him the question, which of them, therefore, will love him more? It's an interesting question. Notice how Simon answered, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus replied to Simon then, he didn't say dude or bro, but probably he should have. He said, bro, dude, you, you judge correctly. Because he did. The one he forgave more would certainly be more thankful, right? I mean, if you owe somebody a thousand dollars and they're never going to pay you back, and you say, don't forget about it no more, your desert white plane, they're gonna be very thankful for it. But somebody for ten dollars, but maybe don't show this same appreciation. It just stands to reason. But R. C. Sproul observes Simon's comment and says, the Pharisee answers Jesus' question with the preface, I suppose. R. C. Sproul says, You can almost hear the acid in his voice as if it is beneath his dignity to answer such a simple question but jesus is making a very important point one that is made elsewhere in the new testament that the person who has been given have been has been forgiven much loves much read the last part again jesus is making a very important point that the person who has been forgiven much loves much how much have you been forgiven? And ponder that question for just a moment. How much have you done in your life that you've lived it so far? How much sin have you accumulated? And how much has Jesus forgiven you? And what I recognize is whether it's great or small, whether it's much or small, know that it's only by the blood of Jesus in which you've been forgiven. It's only by the blood. So, no matter if it's great or small, you've still been forgiven of your sin. And no one will ever forgive you for your offenses like Jesus. Let me say it again. No one will ever forgive you for your sin, for your offenses toward them like Jesus. Now you say, well, wait a minute. I thought people forgive me. Yeah, they probably said they forgive you for something you've done. And maybe you've been in a situation where somebody, you've told someone, I forgive them. But don't you still harbor something in the back of your mind, still in your heart? thinking, okay, I said I forgive them, but I'm never going to forget it. And and don't you still have maybe some ill feelings at the end for that person? And and maybe just a little bit of of, of hatred, a painful memory, certainly, even though you said, I forgive you. But Jesus completely forgives, totally forgives. every Every awful act in our life, he will forgive us for. Every rebellious moment, he will forgive us for. Each and every sin, save one, for blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, will he forgive you for? Because he loves us. In fact, John 3.16 and verse 17 tells us the extent of God's love for us. You know the verse. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should love should love him, does not perish, have everlasting life. Who believes in him will not praise everlasting life. Look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order the world might be saved through him. Jesus loved you. He died for you. He knows you. He loves you. Shouldn't that result in your complete praise and worship? the overarching point this morning is this. Every one of us, as I'm looking at you, I'm a sinner. As you're looking at me, you're a sinner. And not one sin is truly worse than the other. Yeah, we place it on a scale of one that seems to be worse than the other, of little to large. We place it on a scale. But all sin offends God. And if we're honest, all of our sins are many. I don't know anybody who has committed just a few sins. We all have a lot of sin. So because our sins have indeed been many, then you and I have been forgiven much. And so we are candidates to be great lovers of Christ and then to demonstrate our gratitude and thankfulness of honest, genuine, and sincere worship. We all should extend honest, sincere worship to the king because we've all sinned much. We shouldn't extend that fake worship that we tend to do at times when we know people are watching. But honest, complete praise and worship. Genuine, heartfelt. Willing to spend $1.8 million on a jar, a little vial of perfume and pour it at his feet. Just worship the King. Praise Jesus. Perhaps I should share with you and then end on this note that this inspiration for this whole message comes from a song that maybe you've heard before by Matt Redman, The Heart of Worship. I'm not going to sing any bit of it for you, but I want you to hear this last part where he says within the song, within the lyrics, that I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made. it. We dilute our worship, and they send it to others who are really, truly not deserving. When it's all about you, it's really all about you, Jesus. You are worthy of our praise. Let's worship Jesus. Father, Lord, we thank you for the message reminds us of where worship truly belongs. Yeah, we get caught up in life and we'll sometimes extend stand little praise and worship to others. But Lord, today we take a moment to reflect upon where our true, heartfelt, sincere, genuine praise and honor and worship should go. And it's only you. Only you, the sacrifice you made, are truly worthy of our praise. So today, Lord, we show a reflection of our gratitude, we show our thankfulness. And today, we extend our praise and worship to you. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for the sacrifice you made, and for being our King, our Savior. In your name we pray.